Republican voters felt that Donald Trump was one of the few Republicans in Washington who would stand up for what they believe and take the slings and arrows to do so. I'm David M. Drucker with The Washington Examiner, and welcome to another edition of In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024, a ricochet podcast and a companion to my forthcoming book from 12 books, In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP. On this episode, Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton. If the perfect presidential contender was hatched in a laboratory, he or she might have a resume that reads something like Tom Cotton's. He was raised in a small town in Arkansas and graduated from Harvard undergrad before going on to receive his Juris Doctorate from Harvard Law School. Inspired by the September 11th, 2001 terrorist attacks, Cotton volunteered for the United States Army and led troops in combat in Afghanistan and Iraq. He was a United States congressman and is now a United States senator. Of course, politics is not quite as traditional as it used to be. Republicans in 2016 had plenty of presidential contenders to choose from with similarly impressive resumes, only to be boxed out by a reality television star and branding mogul who was the exact opposite of the, quote, perfect, unquote, candidate. Still, in addition to that enviable resume that may or may not matter in 2024, if he runs, Cotton can boast of two qualities in short supply, but crucial to success in a Republican presidential primary. The senator is absolutely relentless, and he has a knack for making all of the right political enemies, at least as far as Republican primary voters are concerned. Tom Cotton did not always agree with Donald Trump on everything, but they were simpatico on major policy issues, in part because Cotton himself was a forerunner to Trump and a big believer in significant components of the former president's agenda long before he came along and slapped the slogan America First on it and claimed it as his own. With that in mind, the senator and I spent 40 minutes or so discussing in depth Trump's leadership of the Republican Party and the country and the mark he made on both, while also spending a considerable amount of time on cotton and given the chance where he might take the party and whether he might want to do things a little bit differently than the former president. And now, my conversation with Tom Cotton. We're joined on In Trump's Shadow by Senator Tom Car- Cotton, a Republican from Arkansas. Senator, I've said your name enough that I should not be mispronouncing it at this point. Thanks so much for joining us on In Trump's Shadow. Thanks, David. It's great to be on with you and congratulations on the new podcast. Thank you very much. Um, I wanted to jump right in here and ask you what may seem like a simple question, uh, but it still fascinates me as a political analyst and reporter. President Trump lost his reelection bid in, in 2020 and Republican voters still, by and large, revere him. And that's unusual when you lose the presidency after a single term. Why is that? Republican voters felt that Donald Trump was one of the few Republicans in Washington who would stand up for what they believe and take the slings and arrows to do so. Uh, I think many Republicans across Arkansas, across the country, felt that too many Republican politicians either disagreed with them on questions like immigration or were not willing to take the heat uh, whenever it came time to stand up for the establishment. 
And in Donald Trump, they found in 2015 and 2016, someone who seemed completely immune from the uh, criticism and the eyebrow raising of the New York Times editorial board and CNN anchors uh, saying things they found simply very plausible uh, and very persuasive, yet caused um, liberals in Washington and New York to set their hair on fire. And I think they by and large believe that he delivered on that in his presidency. If you look at how strong the economy was in February of 2020, before we got hit by a once in a century pandemic with wage growth for working class voters for the first time in decades, um, or if you looked at uh, the strength that he had displayed in foreign affairs, such as the killing of Iran's terrorist mastermind, or the numerous judges he appointed and we confirmed in the Senate to the US courts to include three Supreme Court justices, um, that they have a strong, uh, strong feelings of affection for a president uh, who spoke what was on their minds, who did so without concern for liberal opinion makers in Washington and delivered on what he had said once he was in office. When you lay it out like that, it might seem like the answer to my next question is very obvious. But again, I'm just fascinated by it. When you look at how President Trump conducted himself post-election, um, calling into question the results of the election, saying that it was stolen and the role he played in, if not fomenting the riot at the Capitol on January 6th, at least creating the conditions where his supporters felt like it was necessary for them to ransack the Capitol in order to stop the theft of an election. Um, again, Republican voters looked at that, may have been horrified by it, but it did not change their opinion of former President Donald Trump. How was he able to weather that when it was so um, disconcerting for so many Republicans who were in Washington that day? Well, David, first off, I want to be precise about who's responsible for what you saw at the Capitol. It's those people who broke into the Capitol, many times assaulting police officers or destroying public property. Um, it's not the thousands of Republicans who came to Washington that day and who peacefully attended a uh, rally on the Ellipse, which is two miles away from the Capitol. Um, the people who have primary responsibility for it are the ones who committed the crimes inside the Capitol. Um, and I, I got to tell you, as I've traveled the state and traveled the country, I've met several people who were in attendance at that rally on January 6th. And they did not come within two miles of the Capitol. Yet they have sometimes borne the consequences of what those criminals did, um, which I think is deeply unfair. Um, but they also see, once again, a, a liberal media that is trying to excommunicate uh, patriotic Americans from any kind of public debate if they were within uh, 100 miles of Washington, D.C. on that date. And it's that it's that kind of uh, very aggressive um, kind of uh, cancel culture, if you will, um, that wants to read out of public life, not just Donald Trump, but 74 million Americans who voted for him, that I think uh, a lot of Americans or a lot of Donald Trump's voters still feel uh, loyalty to President Trump. Let's go back in time and talk about uh, his initial uh, foray onto the stage in the 2016 campaign. This would be June of 2015, July of 2015, 
you know, he threw overboard a lot of the Republican orthodoxy, at least the orthodoxy we get in Washington in terms of policy, both fiscal policy and foreign policy. I'm talking about issues like trade and certain military deployments. What were you thinking at the time when you saw what he was doing and how it was being received by Republican voters? Um, well, you're right that he overthrew a lot of orthodoxy, and that orthodoxy deserved to be overthrown. And I had long been heterodox about that orthodoxy, David. Um, and we're going to get into that in a minute. And, um, yeah. And so in the summer agenda. of 2015, I, I'd never met Donald Trump until he declared for pre the presidency. And uh, the first conversation I ever had with him was actually over the phone when he was coming to Arkansas. Uh, he was going to speak at our state party's uh, fundraising dinner. And as it happened, I had a conflict. I was going to go to Europe, and that's the trip on which I went to Vienna and met with the International Atomic Energy Agency and discovered the two uh, secret side deals to the Iran nuclear deal. And I wanted to tell him in advance that while I regretted uh, I wouldn't be there for the fundraiser, I uh, welcomed him to the state and that he had a lot of supporters there. And the minute he picked up the phone, we immediately started talking about Iran um, and the nuclear deal with Iran because he had seen what I'd been saying about it for the last six months. And then we quickly moved on to immigration, uh, an area where I had long opposed the kind of terrible bills um, that were nearly passed in 2013, where you have huge amnesty and a uh, huge increase in legal immigration with only the image of enforcement without actual enforcement. So those are a couple issues that uh, were, I, I would say I'd often been heterodox from Republican orthodoxy. I obviously didn't have the same kind of platform as a new senator that a presidential candidate did, especially one with the prior celebrity of Donald Trump. Um, so he, he certainly did reverse a lot of Republican orthodoxy starting with his campaign in 2015, but a lot of that orthodoxy deserved to be reversed. Were you surprised though? Because, you know, other presidential candidates in some previous primaries had tried this and there was always a small little section of the base or some new group of voters that would flock to it, but it never went anywhere. I can't say I was surprised, David. Um, I remember a month after he got into the race, um, I was already hearing from a lot of Arkansans who were supporting President Trump. And some of them were not what you would consider, you know, traditional or typical Republican voters. We had a lot of those in Arkansas um, back in 2015. The state had been Democratic uh, up until just five years earlier. Um, but I also remember hearing from what you might call kind of a classical um, country club Republican. Mr. Establishment literally belonged to his country club, um, was president of the local chamber of commerce, very successful businessman, pillar of the community. And he asked me why I thought Donald Trump was uh, gaining momentum in August of 2015. I said, well, I, I think it's because he's willing to say what's on a lot of people's mind that they feel they're not supposed to stay, that it's politically incorrect or they get criticized by um, their uh, supposed elites. And this man, again, Mr. Country Club Establishment Republican said, well, Tom, I think he's kind of saying a lot of what's on my mind as well. And uh, that was a moment when I thought, you know, uh, Donald Trump may have more staying power in this race than uh, most people imagine. And you're right that some candidates um, in past races had had not identical, but similar platforms on this or that issue, whether it was trade or immigration. Um, I, I think um, the former president's um, international celebrity going into the race made it a big difference. You know, you don't, didn't have to worry about name ID or recognition or 
um, the voters getting to know him. They already already kind of had a sense from him from you know being in the news and being a, a television celebrity for thirty years. Also, I, I wanted to touch on the way the former president communicates, which was also a big hit. And to the extent it wasn't a big hit, it didn't really hurt him. You know, I've watched you over the years fight all of the right fights in terms of the issues that matter the most to the Republican base. And it's some issues that are just important if you're an elected Republican. You don't talk like him. You've never talked like him. I mean, you know, maybe in your private moments you do, but you don't do. And I, by the way, I could say this to basically 99 of your, you know, 99 percent of your Republican colleagues in, in Congress. Nobody talks like him. But not only did he talk like he talked, it worked, or at least it didn't hurt. Why was that? It's not surprising that a builder from Brooklyn and a farm kid from Yale County, Arkansas, don't sound the same, I guess. <laughs> I mean, look, you're both Ivy League, you know, and he, he, he comes occasion. from the Fed circles, and, and you're a military man. Uh, is it just that he could do it because people accepted him as an entertainer? And they wouldn't accept you, or does he have a certain panache with his personality that you know people like me don't have? Well, I do think I mean a lot. Again, um, remember the I mean, The Apprentice was a top-rated show for what ten years. Yeah, um, and so people had a sense of who he was. Now, again, I know that maybe the editorialist at the New York Times didn't watch The Apprentice, but a lot of people in Arkansas watched it. Um, and in terms of presidential politics, a lot of people in places like Ohio and Wisconsin and Michigan watched it as well. Uh, and they can remember Donald Trump back from, you know, the USFL days or uh, from other uh, episodes in his public life before he got into politics. And I, I do think there was just a, a sense that this is the way he communicates. And, and look, frankly, a lot of times I think it was very helpful. If you recall late in his tenure, uh, the threats from Iraq or I'm sorry, from Iran were very, very serious. Um, and he took to social media and Gave a word to the wise in Tehran that if a single thing uh, happened to an American citizen in Iraq, um, then they would have hell to pay. Um, and it seemed to have worked. So there are many occasions in which that very kind of blunt, direct, gruff uh, form of communication of a, a builder from Brooklyn uh, served the interest of the American people. Did he meet the Republican base where they were or did he bring them along with him? So I think there's some of both. David, as, as is often the case, uh, again, we've already touched on some of the issues where um, I've been since my time in public office and, and the president was as well as a, as a private citizen and on which he campaigned, whether it's controlling immigration and making sure immigration serves our national interest or uh, being very clear eyed and hard nosed about uh, our national security, uh, being willing to employ military force where necessary. Um, in targeted and calibrated ways. Um, I think that uh, that's where the Republican base was, but too many Republican politicians weren't with them. So that's part of it. The second part is he helped expand the Republican base. Again, he brought in a lot of voters to our party who had not considered themselves Republicans in the past, who probably didn't typically vote in a Republican primary if they voted in primaries at all, and then who came out to vote for him on the ballot twice in record numbers. So I, I think he both met a lot of our voters where they are and where our politicians hadn't been, but also helped bring in new voters uh, who are there as well. So this is something that I write about in In Trump's Shadow, the battle for 2024 and the future of the GOP, that you were ahead of the curve on a lot of these issues. And we had talked about 
these issues and your views on them for years leading up to the 2016 campaign on issues of trade, on immigration. Um, you were in the more populist camp. Um, you and I discussed your support for raising the minimum wage, at least at the state level, um, and I believe recently at the federal level um, under certain conditions. And f- for most of my lifetime watching and covering Republicans in Washington and elsewhere, these were just not things that not not positions many Republicans took. So clearly this comes from your view of the world and and, and you, you took positions on issues because you believe they were the right thing to do. But I I got the sense that you had an understanding of where Republicans were that not a lot of Republicans in Washington did, at least until recently. What did you understand about who the Republican voter really was versus who was the Republican voter that was imagined by, you know, a think tank in Washington or even one of these conservative groups that grades on, on how you vote on legislation. Yeah. I mean, David, that probably goes back to, you know, my upbringing in rural Arkansas and the time I spent in the army as well. I, I felt that I spent most of my life around normal Americans who are working hard to make ends meet, put food on the table for their kids who want to raise their kids to be patriotic, and God-fearing Americans uh, and who expect their government to protect them and keep them safe, whether it's from the threat of crime or foreign terrorism or adversaries like China, uh, protect them uh, from a now rampaging, incredibly aggressive left in America that wants to remake our culture and to protect their job from unfair competition. Um, A lot of that probably goes back to my my upbringing in rural Arkansas and, you know, the fact that I represent Arkansas. I don't represent, you know, the suburbs of Washington, D.C. in the House of Representatives and all that time I spent in the Army as well. Um, on some of these issues, they come back to just simply, to me, common sense uh, observations about our national sovereignty. I mean, you have to have a border to have a nation and you have because you have borders, you have to have immigration policy. And that raises questions about how many immigrants you will admit into the country and what kind of skills and backgrounds those immigrants will have. and those questions should be directed to me, but should, in my view, be uh, focused on what's in the best interest of the American people, the Americans who are already here, whether your ancestors came over on the Mayflower or whether you just naturalized last week. Likewise, on questions of trade, uh, when it comes to um, the domestic economy, making stuff, selling stuff here in the United States, I think it's generally best left to the market to uh, find the right solution to get the uh, best quality goods and services at the lowest prices. Um, however, when you're talking about international trade, again, you have borders. There's no background uh, set of rules that say all trade is going to be free. In fact, almost every nation manipulates its markets and its trades flows to a much greater degree than America intervenes in ours. And it's often done to our detriment. Most notably with China over the last 20 years. And, you know, for a long time, we've been sticking our head in the sand and acting like trade with China was just an unalloyed good. And I I mean, I guess, you know, if you're buying cheap Chinese products, it is. But if you were making a lot of the things that we used to make in this country, like furniture, for instance, and you lost your job 15 years ago and all that production went over China, it's not such a good thing. And it's not fair either when it's the Chinese Communist Party that's underwriting it as opposed to free market economics. Um, so a lot of these questions go back to my view of um, of our of our sovereignty and protecting our nation, protecting um, our people from threats from abroad, 
um, and preserving what's best about America. Um, I'll, um, I mean, I, I think I would probably add in there that uh, one of the slogans on which President Trump ultimately landed, America first, um, gives the vapors to people in Washington and New York. They understand that that slogan didn't have the most savory history uh, back in the early 20th century. Most Americans don't remember that. And uh, when you say it to them, they think it sounds like basic common sense. If you don't put America first, who are you going to put first? And why wouldn't you put America first? And like President Trump often said to foreign leaders, you know, like Emmanuel Macron, that he understands you're going to put France first. He's got no problem with it. Uh, but he's going to put America first. And I think most Americans think that that should be a lodestar uh, for our elected leaders. And they felt for too long that it wasn't. For a long time, you've been out front fighting the fights that I think Republican voters want fought. One of my sort of biggest memories of this was early on when Barack Obama, the former president, was negotiating what we think of as the Iran deal now. Um, the agreement between the United States and, and our allies in Europe and, and Russia to try and constrain Iran's nuclear weapons ambitions. You famously sent a letter to the mullahs or to somebody in Iran and said, this deal's not going to be as good as the paper it's printed on because it's not a treaty and, and we can get rid of it. And, and you got a lot of heat for that. Um, but what I noticed is you never got as much love from the Republican base as the time you got into a spat last year with the New York Times over that op-ed you wrote about uh, federal law as it relates to tearing down statues of military veterans, uh, statues honoring military veterans. You published this op-ed in the New York Times. The staff of the New York Times becomes very upset. It gets pulled. Uh, eventually, a couple of very good editors are fired over the whole thing. And your online fundraising went berserk. And I covered this for the Washington Examiner at the time. Um, to What does that tell you about what really animates the Republican base when it comes to issues like like you know, fiscal issues and national security issues versus cultural issues and fighting the, the forces that they want fought the most and just having that fight in general versus even a policy outcome. Well, so, I mean, it probably helped that it was the New York Times, that it wasn't some other outlet. Um, but what mattered most to our voters, and I think most Americans, is what the fight was about. Is about defending our country and, and standing up for America. Uh, this was at the peak of the uh, BLM riots. You had looting and arson and assaults throughout the country. And as you say, David, you had statues being defaced and torn down. And remember, these were not just statues of Robert E. Lee or Stonewall Jackson. They were tearing down and defacing statues of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and U.S. Grant. And when you're tearing down statues of Washington, Lincoln, and Grant, it's not because you're seeking to redress injustice. It's because you hate America. And normal Americans can see that. And they saw no one, um, almost no one, defending their viewpoint, standing up for all that is right in America, all of the, the great things we've accomplished across the course of our history to these mobs who are trying to tear down not just arbitrary um, statues, but symbols symbols of that American greatness. And I can tell you, you know, once we got back from that memorial, that long Memorial Day weekend, I'd had enough. And that's why I wrote the op-ed and the New York Times ran it. 
Um, and you're right that we had a huge positive response and they did fire two editors for not for no, you know, errors. They're like, you can go online, look at that op-ed still today. There's no factual misstatements or corrections. They just said it didn't, didn't meet their standards. I agree with that for once. I agree with the New York Times. It didn't meet their standards. It far exceeded their low standards. But nonetheless, because they had a, an uprising of the the little social justice warriors who run their newsroom, the owners uh, sacked their two editors. Uh, they should have fired but, themselves. But, but, I guess but it was that uprising and, and the fact that you provoked it, not on purpose per se, but you were fighting the good fight against the right enemy, so to speak, against the right opposition. I mean, that to me seemed to... Um, engender goodwill in your direction more than the point you were making in the op-ed, which was if you read the op-ed, even if you disagreed with it, was a very dry sort of, this is law, this is how I think we should react to a problem. It wasn't a, it, it, it may have been controversial in some circles for the position that it took, but you weren't advocating anything that provocative in terms of taking extra legal action to prevent um, some of the things that were going on. You were fighting, you provoked the ire of, of a sort of sector of society that a lot of Republican voters feel does not care for them and does not treat them fairly. I always thought that that's why your fundraising peaked at that moment and why um, it engendered so much goodwill. Yeah, I mean, I I think there's something to that, um, that it was the the substance of the fight, that Americans want to see uh, their nation defended. Uh, they don't want people apologizing for America or attacking America or calling it racist or somehow irredeemable. Um, but especially in that moment, um, and since then, um, but especially in that moment, they wanted someone who'd fight back against this aggressive domineering effort to silence any of their critics, uh, to silence any expressions of, of patriotism or a defense of basic law and order. Because uh, most Americans understand that many of the elites in charge of opinion and culture making institutions, whether it's the media or Hollywood or, or big tech, um, do hold them in uh, low regard. They do disrespect our nation and disrespect expressions of simple, simple patriotism. And they don't see enough people uh, in Washington standing up and fighting back uh, against that very aggressive cultural left. And I did it then. I've done it since then. And I'll do it for as long as, you know, those kind of avenging social justice warriors on the left are trying to silence and control and dominate the tens of millions of Americans who don't accept their, in my mind, crazy worldview. Let's switch gears and talk some national security, and I can never get a, uh, get away with a conversation with you without talking some national security. Setting aside for a moment President Biden's uh, chaotic mismanagement of the Afghanistan withdrawal, was the policy of withdrawal the right policy or the wrong policy for American national security? Well, you can't answer that with, without reference to what our core interest is in Afghanistan and, and why we're there for so long. That core interest was and always has been and remains to this day, the prevention of more terrorist attacks launched from Afghanistan against Americans. And I understand that uh, many Americans were very weary of uh, our presence in Afghanistan, even though it had diminished over time and the role had changed and, and we really hadn't been on the front lines fighting for seven years. Um, but we'd had three consecutive presidents who had 
given the sense, sometimes explicitly given the sense by the end of the Trump administration and Joe Biden when he took office, that it was time to um, pull up anchor and head home from Afghanistan. Um, but I worry very much that we will no longer be able to defend that core interest without some small presence in Afghanistan. Uh, you already see the Taliban has put the Haqqani network in charge of security in Kabul. The Haqqani network, I will remind everyone, is a U.S. designated terrorist organization. Al-Qaeda is still present in Afghanistan. Every uh, um, Al-Qaeda leader has pledged fealty to the Taliban going back to uh, Osama bin Laden. And I think jihadis are probably pouring into Afghanistan today, celebrating what they view as their great victory. I know the Biden administration tries to um, say that they're going to fight back against this with their so-called over-the-horizon counterterrorism capability. That's not a new term. You may have heard it, may have been new to you in the news over the last couple of weeks. I've been hearing it for years on the Intelligence Committee and the Armed Service Committee. What they mean is that they're going to be able to launch drones from the Persian Gulf and strike against terrorists. Um, but to paraphrase a senior CIA officer with whom I recently spoke, over the horizon should probably be over the rainbow because there's almost no chance that that's going to work. Um, the reason we had success against terrorists in Afghanistan for the last 20 years is not just that we had bases there and that we could fly our aircraft from there and therefore they were always over the target, not wasting hours flying back and forth from the Persian Gulf, but it's also that we had sources there. We had our own sources. We had sources to the Afghan police and army and, and intelligence services. We have nothing now. So even if you can get an American drone from the Persian Gulf to Afghanistan and have it remain on station for a few hours, how do you know what you're going to strike? Uh, we have virtually no insights there anymore. Uh, and Afghanistan is unique in that regard. Um, it's not just that it's uh, the home of the, the highest concentration of terrorists in the world, but it's uniquely challenging uh, to take counter-terrorist strikes there. Um, I know Joe Biden is always citing countries like Yemen and Somalia and Syria that have terrorists, and they do. All those countries, basically every other country in the world that has a lot of terrorists in it is either on an ocean or next to a friendly neighbor. And Afghanistan is unique in that regard. Um, so I think it, it's hard to say and judge in the abstract the question about the withdrawal without thinking through the consequences of the withdrawal. I'm afraid the consequences are that we're, we're not as safe today as we were uh, six months ago. It sounds like what you're saying to me is that whether hypothetically an orderly withdrawal under President Trump, a withdrawal he clearly wanted, or this chaotic mismanaged withdrawal under Biden, either way, U.S. national security uh, ends up hampered and in a worse off position today or after withdrawal than before withdrawal. Yeah, I, I have not seen any. And this goes back years. The the Trump administration and the Biden administration tried to explain how they'd be able to conduct counterterrorist operate operations in Afghanistan. I've never seen a solid explanation. Um, you know, there are other ways at, at the end state. Uh, in 2020, 2021, you might have used greater leverage with countries like Pakistan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan on Afghanistan's border. Maybe you could have changed the kind of presence we have in Afghanistan, maybe forced the Taliban to actually sit down at the table with the Afghan government as opposed to just kind of make the mo go through the motions towards it. Um, you can't go back much farther, though, of course, maybe all the way back to the very beginning and think about the missteps and the wrong turns we've taken in Afghanistan. Um, some of this started in the Bush administration, but some of it continued in the Obama administration of an effort, even if it wasn't always stated expressly, in effect was trying to turn Afghanistan into a democracy like you'd find in Western Europe, like you know 
the Netherlands or, or Denmark. Afghanistan was never going to be that. It probably never will be that. Now, that doesn't mean it has to be anarchy or tyranny, but it was never going to be that. Um, and we probably, from the very beginning, should have found ways uh, not to try to transform Afghan society, but rather let them choose a kind of government that is more in keeping with their culture, with their traditions, with their history, with their geography, and just make it clear that whatever that government was, we expected it to be a partner in the fight against um, Al-Qaeda and then later against ISIS. Um, and, and look, I mean, the Northern Alliance back in 2001 essentially was able to win that war for us with a few proxy forces. You know, when we won the war in Afghanistan, I think we had maybe 10,000 troops on the ground, certainly fewer than 15,000. Um, and a lot of those leaders from the Northern Alliance ended up in government positions, potentially could have formed the heart of a government in Afghanistan uh, with non-Taliban Pashtuns from the South and the East. Um, we probably, we took a lot of missteps under the Bush and the Obama administration and not trying to go down that path, but instead trying to remake Afghan society and, and Afghan culture into something more like, you know, Denmark or the Netherlands or France, which it was never going to be. Uh, did Trump err in negotiating our withdrawal with the Taliban uh, specifically? So I think the mistake there was, uh, cutting out the Afghan government to a degree. Um, so the Taliban under that agreement had to go through the motions of negotiating with the Afghan government. And they barely did that. They barely went through the motions. Um, but rather than focus on process, to focus on outcome uh, might have gotten to a better result in the end. Uh, now, I'm skeptical the Taliban ever would have made uh, the concessions um, that would have been necessary to have some kind of political solution in Afghanistan as opposed to the military solution we've seen over the last month or so. Um, but um, that's probably with the agreement the president um, reached, and I think it was February of 2020, um, is where I would have done it somewhat differently, focus more on the outcome of negotiations rather than on the process of them. Um, as we did in the beginning of the conversation, I wanted to sort of broaden out here and talk about where Republican voters are on some of these national security issues. Uh, what I've found over the past five or six years, and in the beginning it was surprising to me, but it, it's now something I'm used to, uh, President Trump would talk about um, U.S. national security, the commitments that we have around the world in a, in a different tone with, different, with a different outlook than a lot of Republicans that I have covered. He questioned our deployments on the Korean Peninsula, Japan, in Europe, as he was leaving um, or at the end, as his first term was coming to a close, he was making plans to withdraw some of our forces from Europe. And there there was a lot of receptivity among Republican voters to to President Trump's argument, which sounded to me a lot like his predecessor, Barack Obama's argument that it was time to stop spending so much energy overseas and invest on things we need here at home. And he even adopted a former Democratic talking point, Forever War, to discuss some of these deployments. Um, how did, especially in the post 9-11 era, did we come to a point where Republican voters were almost as suspicious and tired of the work we put in around the world as a, a global leader projecting our military as has been uh, the Democratic Party and, and voters on the left over the years? Well, I 
I can understand why a lot of Americans um, are not terribly sympathetic to people like Angela Merkel uh, and Germans for whom we have protected for decades and who don't pay their fair share and often look down their noses at Americans. Uh, so President Trump is not wrong that some of these nations should spend, should pay more of their fair share, especially our NATO nations and not freeload off of the United States and that we should get as big a contribution to our troop presence in places like South Korea and Japan and Italy and Germany as possible. Again, it, it's not just there. We're not just there for our benefit. We're there for our allies benefit as well. And President Trump succeeded in getting some of those nations to pitch in more, not just their own defense, but supporting our troops there. Um, I'll say though, there's a difference between those nations and Afghanistan. You know, I, I do hear a lot from um, some, some commentators that, well, we've been in, you know, Germany and South Korea for 75 years, in Japan for 75 years. Why can't we be in Afghanistan for 75 years? Uh, I disagree with that view. Um, those countries were advanced industrial uh, societies with high levels of literacy and economic development. In some cases, they had democratic or at least some forms of self-governing traditions. Um, and we pancaked them. We totally flattened them in World War II. They knew they were defeated. We knew they were defeated. We also had the threat of the Soviet Union on their borders as well. Um, so having a peaceful troop presence in places like Germany and Italy and South Korea and Japan for 75 years, uh, underwritten to a large extent by those nations, is very different from having uh, even a small number of troops in a place like Afghanistan. So I'll make that point first. Uh, second, um, just because those troops have been there for 75 years doesn't mean they need to stay there for another 75 years. I thought the president had it exactly right with Germany. It's like, why are we still, uh, why do we still have this large military presence on bases in the Western half of Germany? Well, it's because the Eastern half of Germany used to be Soviet controlled and that's where the frontier was. But the frontier is no longer in the middle of Germany. The frontier is on the Eastern flank of countries like Poland and Lithuania and Latvia and Estonia. Um, so I think there's a strong case to be made for moving our European troops out of where they've been for 75 years and further east uh, to where the real threat is. Um, just like there's a pretty strong case to be made for having them in South Korea and Japan and trying to have more cooperative agreements with places like the Philippines and Vietnam where the threat from China is. It just so happens that those countries closer to the threat also are a lot more grateful for the American presence there. They're willing to cooperate more. They're oftentimes willing to pay more as well. At the same time, they carry more of the own load for their defense. I think that most Americans would recognize those are pretty common sense principles, even though they might not go over well in the Council of Foreign Relations. And yet I'll, I'll push back for a second here in that I, I don't get the sense that Republican voters in particular, but Americans in general, are having an argument over whether we should keep forces in Germany or move them further east, whether we should keep forces in Japan and Korea. Korea is really a separate issue because of North Korea, but keep you know forces in the Pacific where we've had them, but just move them around to counter the China threat, move them around to counter the Russia threat. I think the debate has been, we've been doing this for far too long. We're tired. We don't want to be bothered. So I'm not asking you, have Republicans become liberal pacifists? <laughs> but what I am asking you is it seems as though, particularly on the Republican side and in the Reagan era and now the Trump era, you know, Republicans have generally been thought of as if there's a hawkish party and not a hawkish party, you can depend on Republicans to believe in projecting American power. 
do Republican voters still believe in projecting American power and leading the, the West and guaranteeing global peace against various threats? Or have they sort of joined their Democratic uh, neighbors, Democratic Party neighbors, and saying, let's refocus here at home and not be so stretched? Well, first, no, I think the Republican Party certainly remains the hawkish party. If you look at the Democratic positions on countries like um, Iran or China, for instance, um, I, I think Americans, most Americans want their government to protect them and keep them safe. Um, they're probably not going to vote. You're right on the number of troops we have in Germany versus Poland. But if the decisions that our leaders take lead to the kind of humiliating debacles we saw in Afghanistan, then, yes, they're going to be very angry about it. Most Americans in the 1980s probably didn't get deep into the mix of weapons and aircraft and ships that Ronald Reagan was building up either. But they generally supported a strong national defense and they trusted Ronald Reagan to make the right choices to keep them safe. Um, Donald Trump uh, got some traction on some of these issues because he pointed out things that leaders in either party hadn't been pointing out, like NATO was not paying its fair share and hadn't paid its fair share for many years. And when you point those things out to voters, they're naturally going to say, "Is like, well, why is NATO not carrying the load here? I mean, they're the ones that face the most immediate threat from Russia. Why are they not spending enough on their defense to help pitch into the United States? It used to be 50-50, even split. Now it's almost three to one, America and Canada to Europe. And they're right to be frustrated about those things and demand um, elected leaders who try to address them. So the president was, was right about that. Um, but again, the reason why we have those troops ultimately in those four countries in particular um, in Europe and in the Western Pacific is not to benefit those countries. It's to benefit us. It's to avoid the kind uh, of risk that we face in World War II when a single country uh, through military aggression could come to dominate um, all of the vast land and people and resources of the old world and use it against us. Um, that's, the that's always been the fundamental American security interest, which is protecting our people and our country from attack. Um, it was formally um, stated in the Monroe Doctrine 200 years ago. Um, and we have found through hard experience, the best way to defend our country at home is to have a forward presence. So we don't have to fight our way back in the way we did on D-Day. So we can have beachheads in the old world to prevent aggressive countries like Russia or China or a combination of those countries from uniting all of their resources against us and against our interests over here in the new world. Tom Cotton, U.S. Senator from Arkansas, thanks so much for joining us on In Trump's Shadow. Thanks, David. Congratulations again on the new podcast. Thank you so much. Scott Amergut is the producer of this episode of In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024. My book, In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP, publishes October 19th and is available for pre-order. On a daily basis, you can catch my work online at www.washingtonexaminer.com. Ricochet. Join the conversation.